good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you're listening to us on this episode number three of Kelly Memorabilia podcast, which will be available on all your normal channels on SoundCloud, on Spotify, Apple, and Castbox as well. And I'm delighted to say this evening that I'm joined by the renowned and very well respected football historian, Mr. David Ross, uh, well known of course to Kelly fans, I think, in fairness to say around the world, and um, has three publications on the club, which we're going to know about, um, back in 1994, we had the 125th official history of the club, and then in 2002, we had the first publication of every game, an update the new official history of Kilmarnock Football Club, and David has also contributed a book entitled Kelly Greats, which you can also fill us in on, and Many other subjects and topics around Scottish football, not only Scottish football, but also Barcelona um, is in there as well. So we look forward to hearing about this tonight. So, very good evening, David. Good evening. I just thought I was, when you said renowned and well-respected there, I just had a look around to see if there's anybody else in this wee room. (laughs) Not at all. Yeah, and how, how are you tonight? Oh, um, as well as can be expected, you know, like everybody else, just uh, itching at the bit to be able to get back into a football match again. Yeah, yeah. It's been strange to say, at least hasn't it, the past year. Uh, uh, not been able to get to Rugby Park. And, and also at a time where the team have been having a difficult season, of course. Well, if there was ever a time not to go to rugby park, maybe this season was the one to choose. Perhaps. <laughs> Absolutely. Although there, is, although there is still the cup, you know, I mean, there's a bit of a chance. You know, they're still doing well in the cup. We've got a favourable game. And if we get through that, there's another home tie. So um, maybe by the time we get to the final, or if we get to the final, there might be some fans allowed back in. Yes, indeed, and it's as you say, it's one of these occasions where I was quite surprised and delighted, punching the air uh, last week when the cup draw came out, and I've been away, you know. Um, so to get, as you say, a favourable home draw with Montrose, and then to be at home again with with what mm-hmm. seems another winnable game, another winnable tie against Inverness or St Mirren. And let's mm-hmm. see what it takes us from there. And who would have thought, you know, at, at this the way this season has gone, that we would even be talking about um, such a special potential end to the, the season? Well, normally when you get to April, when you're still with the Scottish Cup, you're already looking forward to the semi-final. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Indeed. So when did your, your time of supporting Kelly begin? <laughs> uh, well, you could say from the cradle, I suppose, but uh, um, I think 
I, I, I'm not one of those who can remember my first match. Uh, I, I do know that it was I was round about five years old, and I've sort of vague memories of uh, winning 3-1, but I, I don't really have any strong memories until the uh, 1963-64 season. That's the first one I can recall in any detail, actually, going to games. OK, and what a time to... To start the memories, really, obviously the club's... Uh, well, I've, I've, I've often thought this, that, that for people of my generation, it was very, very easy to be a Kilmarnock supporter. I mean, I'm from a Kelly supporting family anyway, so I would always have gone that way. But, you know, the sort of pressure that's always put on kids in the playground about the old firm from, you know, almost from the, the start... And it was very, very easy for small boys of my age to stick to Killy, stick with Killy, when uh, they were such a successful team. And I think the, the the fans I respect the most were those who came up maybe 10 or 20 years later, and they were uh, having to go in and watch a side that was struggling, being relegated, playing in front of very few supporters, and uh, they would have had a much, much tougher time of it at school than uh, those of my generation did, or indeed those of subsequent generations, because there's nobody under 35 now can really remember a time when Kilmarnock were anything other than a top division side. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I started going in season 1979-80, and as you say, that was really just the turning point, wasn't it? And I was, I was right. brought up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was brought up on um, stories from the 1960s and that great period of success and the the, the, the fantastic European nights. Of course, the Eintracht game was one that, that clearly uh-huh. was legend to even then. Um, we must have bored you all to death what it was like in the good old days. That's right, yeah. But you know, it was it was hard, obviously, to imagine um, that the club had Aye. been so successful when, when, as I say, I started going then, and we were regularly in the wrong end of um, heavy defeats at home. I can remember losing six one mm-hmm. to St Martin at home, as well as eight one to Rangers um, just around that time, you know. And obviously, we we then had quite a, a period out of the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Uh, Till going back in, in 1994, um, when I had the privilege of being the Tannoy announcer uh, in that season, and on the occasion we were promoted against Hamilton. But as you, you say, I think it's very significant that there's a whole generation of Kelly fans now mm-hmm. that don't know of life outside the top flight. Um, and let's hope that well, continues. Well, let's hope it stays that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you had you had obviously a period, um, as you say, supporting the club there from the the early to mid sixties, and then eventually, you know, you were you had the, this opening, this opportunity to write the history of the club. And am I right in saying that uh-huh. uh, fame by Hugh Spence was that was really just the first history it was written, wasn't it? The first um, history is there's one which is called 50 Years of Kilmarnock Football Club, which came out in 1919. 
And there's no attribution to the author, but it's generally accepted that the the guy that wrote that book was uh, Charles Smith, who was uh, you know prominent club official for for many many years from the 1890s right through the 1920s. There were the odd little publications between you know after that, but nothing really substantial until Hugh Taylor who at that time was probably the foremost football journalist in Scotland, came out with co-fame for the centenary in 1969. And then after that came uh, Bill Donaghy's Who's Who of Colmarnock Players in uh, around about 1990. But there had been no big history of the club. Hugh Taylor's was a fabulous book, but it, was, uh, it wasn't um, a detailed history. No. You know, it was high points, and maybe the odd low point, and entire decades were covered inside a chapter of a, a few pages. So, so what I wanted to do was to was to percolate where Celtic had been, Rangers had been, where all the big English clubs had been, and that is to have a fully detailed history of the club from the start to what was then the present and with as much statistical detail as possible for lineups, for goal scorers, dates, crowds, that sort of thing as well. And um, I've got to say that uh, the chairman at that time was Bobby Flynn, who was very supportive. And I should also pay tribute to the, um, the late Gordon Allison, who had actually had the idea of doing something similar, unbeknownst to me, um, but hadn't been able to find a publisher. Um, so if, if he'd been a bit luckier, then, you know, he would have got the chance to do what he wanted to do. Couldn't do it. I did. And he could not have been nicer, could not have been a better help in opening up and giving me access to all the material that he'd accumulated over many years. And um, it's sad he's no longer with us. Um, but it's only right that uh, he should be recognised. And, of course, he's what you might call partners in crime <laughs> as well. And, uh, John Livingston and Richard Cairns have also done so much for club history over so many years. Yeah, so, I mean, in addition to the, the material you were given, as you said there by Gordon Allison, did, did it involve quite a lot of time in local libraries as well, piecing together and so on? It's if it had been five years later, it'd have been a lot easier. It's, again, it's a thing that's difficult for a lot of people to remember uh, what things were like in the days before the internet. Mm. Now, at that time, I was living in London, and uh, the best uh, uh, place for material was the National Newspaper Library at Collindale in North London. Mm. And getting there involved uh, four stops in a train. Then 23 more on the tube, changing once, and the same coming back again. And the library was only open from 10 o'clock to 4.45, Monday to Friday. <laughs> so it was, uh, and, you know, no chance of photocopying. Everything had to be sort of written down by hand and then typed up after that. And the publisher was in Oxbridge. And with it in my and then passed it to the post office. Um, so I then took it to Oxbridge from East Dulwich in South London, which was another hellish journey uh, there and back, chapter by chapter. 
um, <laughs> until we got it done. And everything hinged on the club winning promotion as well. That was the that was the the deal breaker. The publishers wouldn't take it if uh, Kelly didn't win promotion. So I was basically, if they won promotion, it was going to be too late to write it. So I had to take a chance on uh, on going up. You know, so I was I was probably more nervous at that Hamilton game than anybody else. <laughs> Indeed, no, it's fascinating. Um, certainly, I'd never heard that that situation scenario there before, and. Yeah, I mean, for, it's a lot easier. Yeah, for lo- younger listeners doing any kind of research now, and particularly one as, as in depth as you, you clearly carried out on the club, to not have access to the internet, you know, at the touch of a button, and the facts and figures been there in, uh, for results and you know famous games in the club's past. Do you know what the worst of it was? Was that after I'd done all and gone through every season and every match by hand and then typing it up, every, you know, number one, number two, number three, this game. After I did all that, I found out that Richard, John and Gordon had done all that. (laughs) (laughs) They'd already done it all. (laughs) I never knew that until until it was all finished. So that'll teach me. Uh, and then what what led to the I mean obviously every game came out fairly soon afterwards was there any there was seven seven years afterwards Mm -hmm. and what had happened of course in the interim um, the club had gone I mean I left the original 125th anniversary was left off with staying off at Easter Road on the last day of the season that was it. Look, in the seven years since then. First of all, you have the ground totally changed from the old rugby park into a new all-seated stadium. Then after that, you have the Scottish Cup been won. You have the League Cup final been reached for the first time in nearly 40 years. You have Europe four times in five seasons after a gap of almost a quarter of a century. You have players like Ali McCoist and Ian Durant and for Kelly, of course, with Tommy Burns before that was another big name. And uh, it was just, uh, it was a place transformed. Crowds were on the up. I mean, there were there were more people watched Kilmarnock in 1999 than watched the team that won the league in 1965. So it was a totally different place. And I thought the time had come, but what I didn't want to do was just do a seven years add-on. Mm-hmm. So I thought back a look for them an entirely, although I'd keep the statistical material and update that, I thought I would um, take an entirely different perspective, which is to go through it from A to Z. So uh, teams, opposing teams from A to Z, so that, uh, the book itself was, in that sense, an entirely new publication. I wasn't just asking people to pay for seven year extra sort of thing. Sure. And um, doubt as to whether that format would work, but it uh, it did seem to go down well. And I, I I think also because it meant that because I was doing an A to Z, it meant that teams that would never otherwise have got a mention 
in a club's history because he maybe only met him once in the Scottish Cup in 1880 or in a match in America in 1961 it meant they could all be featured yeah yeah I mean really good information as you say explanation and and it makes absolute you know clarity that's perfect sense as to why with the club very much on the up in the late 1990s in particular um, that that, you know you find space to, to do that again a tremendous publication and reference um, for the club's history and I know looking at the 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 attributes on the book that was published um, just recently in the 150 years that obviously you get credited um, at the start of that 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 is a wonderful publication that as well some of the stuff in there is uh, incredible yeah yeah and it yeah, I mean, it, obviously, I mean, it's a be- beautifully presented, even just the whole hardback presentation, the, the right. sort of work of photographs and material. And I know part of the aim of that book, wasn't it, was to to publish photographs that we, we probably hadn't seen before and maybe ones that you hadn't, you hadn't had the chance to publish in your own work. There's certainly a lot in there that was the first time that uh, that, that I'd ever seen them, that's for certain. And mm-hmm. I thought I'd rummaged through every nook and cranny of rugby park back in the 1990s. But no, there's some, yeah. incredible, uh, some incredible photos in there. Yeah. I mean, even newspaper-wise, was, I mean, was the, the, presumably the Kilmarnock Standard was a, a primary source for you going back through the history, but what, what sort of old newspapers were useful there? Well, there was, there was actually an old newspaper called the uh, Kilmarnock Herald, which is publication in the mid-1950s. And it's now, large parts of that are now available in the British newspaper archive, and the digital archive. So the standard most, uh, um, the Kilmarnock Herald, there are some other ones long since gone. That, uh, there's one called the Ayrshire Argus, for instance, which I, I don't remember much about, but there were little snippets there. Um, and believe it or not, one of the most useful ones was Sunday Post, because the um, the National Newspaper Library in Collendale had got a uh, you know, complete set of those from 1914 onwards. And one thing they did was have every line-up in them. Because not every, not every newspaper in those days carried details of the line-ups. They'd maybe no. give a match report, mention who scored the goals, and that would be it. But the, the Sunday Post always had both line-ups and the rest. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, not only with, with lineups, you mentioned crowds there earlier, and uh-huh. you have another publication on crowds across Scottish football, which I remember reading a few, I mean, thoroughly enjoying a few years ago. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that people always bemoan the crowds at Rugby Park and, you know, say, in times where we might be getting three and a half thousand season ticket holders or maybe five thousand in a home gate, but but yet historically, um, as you alluded to earlier, you know the late nineteen nineties are an anomaly, aren't they? The thing is, 
the the with with the tendencies, there's a sort of tendency to romanticise the past and to think that uh, oh things are so much better. Now I I heard this off my father. Now my my father um, was born in 1923, so he was going to rugby park in the late 1920s onwards. Yeah. And of course, he also witnessed the post war boom. And he's on about how all these great crowds making out individual matches, as a lot of people do, and remembering the big crowds there. He wasn't remembering the two and a half thousand that were turning up in 1934 for a match in November against Clyde or St Johnston. <laughs> he was remembering the twenty-five to 30,000 that were turning up for big cup ties. Yeah. But there is, with, with the attendances, I do have to say that the, the Scottish League were very, very funny about that. They, um, they seem to regard their attendance figures as being like the crown jewels. And okay. when I went to try and kill the crowds from them, they would only allow to take down Kilmarnock home attendances and Kilmarnock away attendances and they only had them since 1961 and I said you know what's going on here I said the English League have got all the figures from 1925 and they're freely available you can find them anywhere and what they said to me was that uh, oh the clubs don't like I said don't they they said no the clubs don't like it giving away these details I said well I'll tell you what I said uh have they given me third lineups? You know, I said, well, who's going to object to give me third lineups? You know, there's, there's nobody to object to that. Oh, we'll have to ask the board. So, and this carried on for a long time. That Irori crowd never came out in 2005. And again, I'll pay tribute to David Thompson at the Scottish League who fought my corner from me. And then eventually they, they allowed me in to take details of everything from 1961 onwards. <laughs> but, I, I mean, why the seat around it, I have no idea. No, no. Um, and, as you cite there, you know, you've got 118-odd thousand for a game between Rangers and Celtic, and then you've got 32, as it turned up, for East Stirling against Leith Athletic just <laughs> months later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was uh, that was I uh, the lowest pre-war crowd, thirty-two. Um, it's the same day, I think, same day as the Scotland England match. So right. that might have been, that might have had something to do with it. I don't know. Maybe that was covered in the radio. Um, that was before television era. But if it was on the radio, that might have explained it because there were no transistor radios at, at games in nineteen thirty-nine. But it wasn't the worst. The worst. Attendance was ten years later, or the worst recorded attendance when there were twenty-two people in between Brecon City and Edinburgh City in the old C Division. And so that was as many factors. So if you count the referee and the linesman, there were more people on the pitch than there were watching the match. <laughs> and, uh, how, how do you think crowds will be affected across the game? Assuming that we're able to get back in the stadium in August, do you think crowds will, will be a bit lower this season? This, this is the great unknown. It's, mm. it's, I think it's impossible to predict because uh, we just don't know what this thing has done 
to people's behaviour and apprehension. If you think about it, just before the first lockdown, there were full houses at Anfield and Ibrox in the, the week before the lockdown. And yeah. since then, there's been, you know, next to next to nothing. Mm. I know it in, in the UK, there have been, you know, some countries have, uh, have, have let in a few more. But I've heard all sorts of theories. I've heard people say, oh, well, after the war, people will be champing at the bit to get in. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wait a minute, the war was seven, you know, the war lasted six years. Organised football was stopped for seven years. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of league cups, there were friendlies, there were wartime competitions. But, you know, not the same as what you might call a proper league or a, or a proper cup. Mm-hmm. And you were having... And, and what was in those days as well, still mainly a male spectator sport, you then had hundreds of thousands of people who had spent four, five, six years in the Army, the Navy, and the, Navy and the Air Force in dreadful, perilous conditions, risking their life day in, day out. They were coming back. They wanted some entertainment. The entertainment that was there was the cinema and football matches. Television was in its infancy. You know, and hardly anybody, hardly anybody in the set. So it was the TV and the football. And that was why there was a big upsurge then. The other problem is this, maybe not so much for Scottish clubs outside the old firm. And that is that it's impossible to have a post-COVID to have a post-COVID boom if you were selling 45, 50,000 season tickets beforehand, as they are at Celtic and Rangers. And even at Aberdeen, Hearts and Hibs, they're selling more season tickets now than at any other time in their history. And you can't have a boom if everybody's already buying a season ticket in the first place. And that's before you start to think, will people feel safe? Will they actually start feeling safe going into a ground? Now, I know first chance I get, I'm going to go to a game. But because of where I live, which is the southwest of England, it's going to be, these are going to be small matches with a couple of hundred people there and uh, plenty of plenty of room to go and stand by myself at a corner flag if I want to. When you've got seats next to one another, it may be a different story. I, I, I genuinely cannot predict what is going to happen. No. I think ultimately, ultimately, we will get back to where we were. And hopefully, in Kelly's case, um, a bit better than we've been getting lately. Um, but impossible to say when. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It may well take time. And I mean, I know there's talk at the moment about Hamden being able to to be used to some to some degree for the Euros in June, not however the Scottish Cup final. Um, and I know that Hamden is, is another one, was, seems to be one of your other interests there, um, doing some research in the National Stadium. Well, again, it was, um, I noticed around about uh, 2000 to 2000, it was coming up to the centenary of Hamden in 2003, for the present Hamden. So I contacted the Scottish FA and said, uh, you know, what about to commemorate uh, 100 years? And they said, um, great, go ahead. And so I did. And then once I'd uh, started on it, Forrest Robertson got in touch with me and said, uh, how about teaming up? And I'll do the early and you there, but 
and uh, because I knew of his reputation and I knew how well versed he was and he was a Queen's Park man, um, they said, right, let's go ahead and do it. And that was actually showed you another reason why things had changed so much in such a short period of time that I sat in Cornwall and wrote my bit. He sat in Stirlingshire and wrote his bit. And we got it all done in together. And I think we actually only met once before the book was published. Okay. And when you think what I was saying about 1993, 94, and how difficult it was, and yet that was done in 2002 and 2003, less than 10 years later. We only met once, but we managed to produce the, the book between us. Incredible. Incredible, right enough. And so where, where did your interest in the year of living gloriously for Barcelona come in? I was living in Barcelona at the time, actually. And, uh, and it was the most marvellous stroke of luck in the sense that I moved there, my wife and I moved there in uh, April, May 2008. And the following season, Barcelona swept the board. European Cup, Spanish League, Spanish Cup, and then later on in 2009 they added the Spanish Super Cup, the European Super Cup, and the World Club Cup. So in a sense I'd, I struck it lucky. I'd gone there and te- I'd, I'd intended to write a book about Barcelona, but I had no idea that they were going to be as successful in that, in that season. And um, again, club were fantastic. The people there were fantastic. The only thing, the only quibble I'd have with them was uh, they never gave us a ticket for El Clasico. No, that was a, They'd let me. They'd let me. They'd let me in the press box for uh, for matches against uh, Mallorca. <laughs> or, uh, you know, one of the smaller sides. But when it came to El Clasico. Uh, they said, no, nah, that's, uh, we don't have any spare tickets for that. Right. And the only time, actually, in six years in Barcelona, I must tell you this, only once did I get the chance of going to an El Clasico match. Right. Um, that was because it was uh, it was in August, and I think it was the, the Super Cup. And August in Spain is uh, a holiday month. Right. If you want to see what a city was like, if you could have given a, an example of what a city would have liked during COVID, before COVID struck, go to Barcelona in August, there's nobody there. Everybody just gets out of the city because it's that hot. So for the first time in living memory, they put tickets from Barcelona versus Real Madrid on public sale. Right. And there was only one wee problem with that. It clashed with Kilmarnock versus Stenhouse Muir in the League Cup. <laughs> it's a tough choice. It did. Seriously, it clashed. And it was a defence of the League Cup. It was the first game after we won it. I'd, uh, I'd already made arrangements to go over and to uh, meet up with some people and see some relatives, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, that was it. So I spent the, the night before or the night after the, the Barcelona-Real Madrid game, which I could have been at, I spent it watching Kelly getting bumped out the League Cup at home by Stenhouse Muir. 
So I was absolutely delighted to see that result last Saturday. Yes. To make it sound, not quite make up, but yeah, make up for it indeed. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, no, it's been a, such a fascinating um, range of, of books there that you have, and as you say, been able to, to be there and be present. And so the, the people in Barcelona were were able to give you access to, to records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, yeah. they have. Um, they actually have a there's, a, there's a museum there, and at the back of the museum is the, the record section. So basically, oh, I wish I could remember. This is wrong. I must go and get it and remember the guy's name. Maybe a minute. Right. There is it. Because having, having mentioned all the other people that have been so helpful, it would be remiss of me. Um, and it's so long since I've been, yeah. Manuel... Tomas Belen, runs the uh, Barcelona Centre for Documentation and Studies, mm-hmm. and uh, he gave me full access, um, gave me details of everything, uh, going back particularly to you know some of the the earlier players, because the original intention was to do a Barcelona book along the lines of the Killy. I will get a share of every payment. Uh, and actually, the way I worked with Killy was 18 months after the book went on sale. Any sales after that go to the club for the, or were meant to go for the um, 50 for the Future Youth Fund that was there oh, at the time. Yeah. Uh, so I said, then, I said, we do, do it the same way. And they said, no, um, if you want to sell this in our shop, you must pay £10,000 for a licence. So I thought, right, you know, that, oh, that's, uh, <laughs> where was I getting ten grand from in the first place? You know? <laughs> no, 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 that, that's, that, that just wasn't on. And as a result of that, that went by the by. So instead, I came up with the idea to do that year of living gloriously that season. And I said, as luck would have it, they won everything in six, so, uh, I mean, they won everything by the Christmas lottery. Yes. So, um, I, I went with that. Yeah. And was, has that been published in Spanish and Catalan as well? No, no, only in English. And that was the idea because there are, you know, there were plenty of publications in both uh, Spanish and Catalan. And the whole idea was to was for an English language back that season. And I don't know if there's been others since, but certainly at that time it was the first it was the first English language account um, of two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, and that was done in a match by match format. Um starting from the friendlies in Scotland at the start of the, at the start of the season. And they played Hibs and Dundee United and going right through to the uh, the World Club Cup in the Middle East at the end of the, the end of the following year. Yeah. But I also have to say as well, the real good thing about that, not so much writing that book, is getting the chance to watch players like Metany Esther, Xavi, uh, week in, week out. And, uh, you know, it was a fight. Finest football team I've seen in my life, barring the Kelly side that won the league. <laughs> and uh, yeah. that it was 
it's an immense privilege to be able to watch some of those fabulous players. Yeah. You know, because they, they really... Masters of their art, weren't they? And just, yeah, as you say, a very special team indeed. And, and certainly in recent, recent memory, um, nobody to compare to them, really. Um, but speaking of, of Europe, European issues there as we have been, I think, and you also focus in um, Very Heaven on a quite remarkable season for Scottish clubs in Europe in the 60s, which is, oh. is impossible to imagine, isn't it? It's one of those sort of, uh, you know, the old saying about a Hollywood screenwriter wouldn't dream it up. And that's what that season was like. You know, I mean, this, this, on the one hand, you've got all the great triumphs. You know, you've got, you've got Scotland going to England when they're the world champions and beating them at Wembley. Celtic winning the European Cup. Rangers in the, the you know, in the final of the Cup when I got, went back to Barcelona. Dundee United in their first ever matches in Europe, beating Barcelona home and away. Yes. They did that again 20 years later. Tilly reached the semi-finals in the first cup and then and you've got other things going on as well Derek knocked Rangers out the Scottish Cup and then in the midst of all that all that great stuff for Lanark going to the wall 95 years old and uh, you know the only club that were a founder member of both I think I'm right in saying they were the only club that were a founder member of both the Scottish Football Association and the Scottish League. And, uh, you know, because Kelly were founder members of the SFA, but not of the league. Mm. Queen's Park didn't join the league when it started. They were the only one. Five years off their centenary, they went bust in the same year as all these great Mm. things were happening. And, uh, no, there'll never be a season like that ever, ever again. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible to contemplate. Uh, that sort of thing happening nowadays. Absolutely, and, and I mean, I, I consider it a, a great memory of, in terms of Scottish football, thinking back to the 1980s. Um, it, you know, it didn't have the height of the season you mentioned there, but Aberdeen obviously winning the Cup Winners' Cup, Dundee oh, right. reaching the semi final of the European Cup, going very close, and of mm. course, then reaching the UEFA Cup final. And at a time where Hearts beaten Bayern Munich as well. And mm. you know, a period where Scottish clubs obviously were able to compete in Europe. Oh, hi. I mean, yeah. I mean, Aberdeen's achievement was, was tremendous. You know, I mean, they beat Real Madrid in the final. Okay, it might not have been the great Real Madrid side, but beating any Real Madrid team in Europe takes a lot of going. And as I said, the United went and did the same as they did in the 60s. They, they beat Barcelona all went away. Yeah. Borussia Mönchengladbach. You know, I mean, Aberdeen not fire Munich out of the, the Cup Winners' Cup. These were, the, these were tremendous achievements. And I think in large part, they were down to two remarkable managers. Yes. In Alex Ferguson and Jim McLean. And of course, we know what Ferguson went on to achieve at Manchester United as well, but Aberdeen was what uh, was what kick-started him. He'd been a successful manager before, we Sterling and St. Nunn, 
But he turned up and then from a from a team that was, you know, a third, fourth, fifth sort of side, not only be competing with the old firm, but being better than the old firm. Yeah. It made Rangers and Celtic were fair to play Aberdeen rather than oh. the other way around. And <laughs> absolutely Jim McLean did it a different way. Jim couldn't get away with it in today's game. I mean, Jim used to no. insist that, that players lived 20 miles, no further than 20 miles from the ground. Yeah. He tried to sign them up when they were about 18 and 10 years contracts and all that sort of thing. And, uh, that would, uh, that's, that, that's impossible to do in, in today's game. But again, he did his own transformation. When he took over, the United were the second in the city when he took them over and always had been. And within about five years, he made the, the top dogs in Tayside, and they've they've stayed that way since. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, a, a caliber of manager that I don't I don't think it'd be fair to say we have really seen much in the Scottish game since the 1980s. In some respects, I suppose it could be argued what Steve Clark achieved at Rugby Park just a couple of years ago. Um, oh, phenomenal. It's really the closest we've come to that. Absolutely phenomenal what Steve Martin did. You know, I mean, it's uh, it, to, to transform a team that was struggling the way Kelly were and to get them into the top six in the first place uh, in journey season when we were near the bottom when he, when, he, when he took over and then for a third finish the, the following season Best in over 50 years. Back in Europe, though the least said about that, the better. And um, it's just, you, you, that was the sort of thing that you could not have predicted. I think everyone knew when Steve Clark arrived, the club were going to be on the up, definitely. Yeah. Because you had the quality, you had the background, you looked at some of the names of the people he'd worked with. You know, at, at uh, Chelsea and at Liverpool, and he'd had experience in the the English Premiership. Uh, I think the West Brom as well. was it West Brom. West Brom. I think as well. So quite he was a top quality manager coming into Rugby Park. I defy anyone to turn around and say at eighteen months time will be third in the league. No, you know you just not predicted that. No, no. For for me, I think in terms of Scottish managers. I, I don't see a better one than Steve Clark and Steve Clark's achievements no. since the days of McLean and Ferguson. No, no. I mean, there, there are good managers, but there are there are fewer of them around. You know, at one point, at one time, until a fairly recent past, you could always rely on maybe four, five, six Scottish managers inside the top flight in England. And you can't do that. Mind you, there's not many English managers in the top flight in England either <laughs> no. uh, these days. But um, but uh, I'm not sure what's happened there. I think it's maybe it's the, the change of style of management. Managers no longer rule the roost no. the way they did in the days of Jim McLean. <laughs> or um, a good English example of them would be Brian Clough. Yes. You know, in those days, the, uh, the manager laid down the law. But if you're in a situation whereby some uh, Russian oligarch or Middle East sheikh, you're asking them to spend 50, 60 million pounds on a player, uh, 
I think you can fairly, you know, you can safely say that that person is going to have a big say in who the manager puts out in the pitch on a Saturday. So we seem to have gone full circle. Before the Second World War, um, directors and selection committees held sway. Hugh Spence was manager of Kilmarnock for nearly two decades. Not once did he pick that team without it being put before a three-man committee of directors before the match to approve or to change it. They had the say. Then after the war, managers come into their own and would make a big point about no director will tell me what team to put out in the pitch. You know, I will walk out this club the moment any director says that uh, says who I must play. Now, it's different. Even your Mourinho's will field the players that their chairman, that their bosses tell them, uh, tell them to field. Yeah. And in fact, even the Scottish football, as late as the 1960s, uh, there was a Rangers manager, Scott Simon, who was one of the great post-war managers. Won everything in sight. Well, he cut his face, you know, took <laughs> Preston North into the FA Cup final. You know, he had a good record. Then he came to Rangers, he joined great success. They were playing Real Madrid in the European Cup time, Madrid. Simon couldn't hand the team sheet over to the referee because one of the director's planes had been delayed coming in from London and they had to wait for that director to get to the ground and cast his eyes over the team sheet before uh, before it could be given the go-ahead. This was the European Cup tie against Real Madrid and the manager couldn't say, you know, this is my team. Incredible. Yeah. No, just the way that the many ways in which the game has changed beyond, I suppose, all recognition. Uh, but just going back to Kelly, but, but, sorry, just going back to Kelly and just your own research, your own work on, on that. Are there any pieces of memorabilia from the club's history you've, you've picked up along the way you still have? Um, I, I'm, I'm not a great one, actually, for, uh, for memorabilia. Although I think um, one of the things I did like was that uh, I did get a, a framed uh, copy of the photograph of the uh, club centenary match against Eintracht Frankfurt in, in 1969. And uh, that is, uh, that's got a sort of pride of place thing. Um, but other than that, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a, a collect maybe some books. I've got a full set of Rothmans here on the shelf behind me, for instance. Yes. But, and I want a program match I go to, but I wouldn't say I collected programs, right. for instance. Right. Um, I, I've maybe got the odd match ticket lying right. around, but I don't collect match tickets. Um, so I don't have room for them. You know, yeah. from the, yeah. the, 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 anything else. But uh, it's yeah. memorabilia. I did get a copy, a photocopy of that original um, 1919 booklet that was published by the the Comarnock Standard, the 50 year history. Um, so I've I've got so I've got not not a, a replica of the book, but just photocopies of the actual pages, and uh, that's I love that as well. But uh, otherwise, uh, the 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 best memorabilia is the the memory of the last match, and you've just had a good win. 
Yeah, indeed. So, so just kind of round it off with thoughts for the, remain, the remainder, you know, the next five games and we mentioned the Scottish Cup earlier. Are you confident of uh, Kelly staying up? Well, we're, we're doing this the night before the Ross County match. If we were doing it in 24 hours time, I'd have a far better idea. Indeed. Um, until, until a couple of weeks ago, no. But the, the thing is now, this is in our own hands. We're okay. We're second bottom now. But if we beat Ross County tomorrow, that's us out at the bottom too. This is, uh, we're not waiting for other teams to slip up or for, you know, looking for results elsewhere, which we were doing two weeks back. Yeah. You know, fans are busy refreshing their browsers to see how Hamilton were getting on against St. Mirren, for instance, and that kind of thing. We're no longer doing that. If we if we win our games, and looking at the five fixtures we've got, of those five fixtures, earlier in the season, the team was not playing well at all. We took 10 points yeah. from those five fixtures. If we take 10 points again, we stay up. It's as yeah. simple as that. Yeah. So in a sense, all we're asking the lads in the pitch to do is to be just as bad as they were earlier in the season. <laughs> <laughs> because if they're just as bad, they'll take 10 points. But, but, uh, but no, I mean, and I also think if the worst comes to the worst, you know, we've, we've been here a few times in the past uh, 10, 15 years. Yeah. And there is this nagging feeling that, you know, you can't always sort of stay up. You know, yeah. one of these times it's going to go wrong. If it does and we end up in the playoffs, I think we've every chance of being successful in the playoffs. Because yeah. I don't see a great deal of quality in it. I don't think you'll get a game from the teams in the championship, definitely. But there's no side there that you're sitting there saying, oh, I hope we don't play them. No. I hope we don't have to meet them. Nothing no. like that. The problem is we finish up in the bottom spot because then it becomes very, very difficult to climb out, to climb back out of that division. Okay. And uh, that's that's the fear. That's the fear. Yeah. Um, and stay confident, stay optimistic, as I said. Do the same as we did earlier in the season against the same five opponents, at the same home games, same away games. Take another, well, take 15 points, but 10 will do. Do the same yeah. as we did before, you'll stay up. Simple yeah. as that. I, think the, I also think, by the way, it's the right appointment. The manager, regardless of what happens, Tommy Wright, I think, was the best manager available. He has a very good track record with St Johnston. You only have to look at what they did, uh, what they did in his what seven years there. And um, if the worst comes to the worst, then we are still as well placed as we possibly could be. Um, with as good a manager as there is in the Scottish game today. Yes, absolutely concur with that. And do you have any, uh, have any uh, upcoming projects? Upcoming projects I have been, um, I did a book in 2013 called Gaffers, which was an A to Z of Scottish football managers. Yeah. And um, I've been trying to update that but of course, the problem is when you're trying to update a book about Scottish football managers, then you know you'll find that every week there's one gets sacked, or yeah. somebody else comes in, uh, and 
what was over 700 pages originally. In the seven or eight years since, there's obviously been a lot more managers to, to add to that. Um, so it's difficult getting it right. What I really wanted to do was to do um, a history of Killy managers, specifically aiming at managers. And that is still very, very much a work in progress, okay. uh, but it will be done. And uh, the, again, the, the whole idea there is to do it in a chronological order and take every manager, before there was a manager, look at some of the more prominent committee men and club officials and so forth, like Charlie Smith, whom I mentioned earlier, or John Wallace, the club founder, because um, they, they played as, you know, in a sense, they were managers, you know, because they were picking the teams. And they were doing all the secretarial work and everything like that. They just never had the title or the salary to go with it. Um, so to do that and to take it up to the, I think when I started it all, it was to run up to Steve Clark. Right. We're now in our third manager since then. <laughs> so, so again, it'll, it'll take a bit of time, but eventually, you know, a bit of luck, I'll get there in the end. And uh, hopefully it will reach the same point as when the previous club histories were published because the first one came out after the first season back in the top flight after 10 years so that was a good year every game came out having reached Europe for the fourth time in fifth years and having reached the League Cup final for the first time in nearly 40 years so if these things come in three then uh, the next history will come out after another cup triumph. Well, let's, let's hope so. <laughs> uh, very much look forward to reading that one. So, David, it has been an absolute pleasure. It's been a privilege Likewise. To, to speak to you tonight. Thank you um, so much for taking part in, in this podcast. Um, You're welcome. I've loved it. Good. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, tremendous to hear your your thoughts, your you know all about your work uh, for the club and the club's behalf. Um, I'm fascinating as well to hear about some of your other projects like Barcelona um, and the statistics on on the history of crowds in Scottish football. It's it's been absolutely tremendous. It's been an education for me. I have read your books. I can honestly say, um, and I have thoroughly enjoyed them. Each, each time I have. Thank so, you. Thank you. Um, and as I say, I very much look forward to the Kelly history and the Kelly manager. Before and I just want to say thank you because I've been uh, you know, following the, the series uh, when I can and probably enjoying the ones that the ones I Coming up on the Kelly Memorabilia podcast, we're going to be talking about fanzines in the near future, going right back to the time of Paper Roses, Kelly Ken, right up to date with the hippo, of course. And we're also hoping to be speaking to the Kelly Trust in the near future as well, and finding out about their work and about their thoughts on all things Kelly as well as memorabilia. So we hope you enjoyed tonight's episode and a trip through the, the history books, really, of our great club. And hope you will be able to join us again in the very near future. Do give us a follow on Twitter. 
under the handle Kelly Memorabilia. And once more, remember the podcast is available on all the main outlets, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple, uh, Castbox, and also Google as well. So for the meantime, it's good night from me. Take care.